We're continuing in our study of why Jesus is superior. Why is he superior? Okay. Does everybody know Lester Cole? Lester, would you stand for a moment? Let's wonder, did, did you actually have to pay for those pants? How, how, how fast did they run? They run you down to make you wear those. <laughs> the saints are okay. It's just, <laughs> uh, what are the two absolute necessities that qualifies the man, Jesus, to be God's Messiah, to save us from our sin. Remember, I, 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 we, we want to drill this in because it's foundational to everything we believe and everything that God has done. It is foundational to everything we believe and everything that God has done. Uh, is there any adult in here who knows an answer? Any non-low adult knows the answer. Do you know the answer? Wait, here's Mary. Everybody knows Mary? Hi, Mary. What is the answer? Uh, it must be God and must be human man. So what are the way we put it? The son of Ma God? The son of God and the son of man. Give her a hand. All right, love. It is imperative. That in this one man, there must be the two natures, each distinct dwelling in one man, but yet each nature not being infused or confused with the other, but each in distinct and each working in absolute unity. So that in this one man, these two natures are so unified and equally at work that this man, all that he says and all that he does is the son of God. All that he says and all that he does is a man. Do we have that? He's not more man than the son or more son, but he is equally the son who has taken to himself a human body and soul. And this morning we'll see something about why. I don't know what you're taking away from these series. But if you don't take this away, you have missed the very foundation of what the series is about. Because if Jesus is not, or let me say it this way, if in this one man is not the fullness of the Son of God, of divinity dwelling in bodily form, you remember what Paul says in Colossians. If he's a minuscule, not fullness, He's not the son of God. And he's also fully a man. Correct? These two are equally active, real, functioning, yet distinct. So what are the two qualifications that make this man our redeemer, the one who has saved us from our sin? He is at one, the same time, the son of God and the son of man. Amen. 
Can we remember that? If we don't get anything else from this series of lessons, let's remember that. Because the church, unfortunately, is too weak in this area. We don't want to overemphasize the humanity of Jesus, nor overemphasize the divinity of Jesus. We want to keep them as God has created them, exactly in balance, equal. Correct? We got that? Okay. So we have now seen that we've talked about the word today, that eschatological day in Psalm 2-7, when God says to this king whom he has installed, remember in verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion. You remember that? God says to this king, Yahweh says to this king, today I have begotten you. Today I have proclaimed you. I have installed you. He's speaking to the son. This is the father speaking to the son. I have installed you as my king upon Mount Zion. And he's installed him as the king to rule over a kingdom that God is establishing, progressively bringing it to revelation, is establishing and will establish with the return of the Lord Jesus. And he'll establish that in fullness. And why? Because Adam was created by God to be the head of a race who would be those who would rule over all the world as God's agent. Amen. Do you remember that in Genesis one twenty six? Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Let them what? Rule and have dominion. Remember in that verse, rule and dominion. So now we come to verse 8 of Psalm 2. And in this verse, we're going to be reading, why has God installed Christ as king? For what reason? Just to have a king? So do you have verse 8 in your notes? And so the, Yahweh is speaking. In verse 7, he says to the son, he says, I've installed you as my king. Today, I have begotten you. I have, I have announced you as one and only unique, my son, as a king. Remember that. Only begotten. Then in verse 8, now that I've installed you as my king, what does he tell him? What does Yahweh, the God of glory, what does Yahweh tell the son in verse 8? Now that I've installed you as my king, do what? Ask me. Ask me what? Ask me something. It's a command. It's not, would you like to ask me a question? This is a command. God is not requesting. I don't know whether God ever requests, really, because even in the Lord's request, you've heard that, where the colonel is sitting in his office and the uh, lieutenant is sitting outside the office and the colonel says, Lieutenant, when you get a moment, come in here. <laughs> so several moments pass and the colonel answers, Lieutenant, where are you? And the lieutenant says, well, sir, you said when I get a moment. That was your moment. You see, and so Yahweh says to him, ask me. Ask me for what, Rosa? Ask me for the inheritance. Ask me for the inheritance. What inheritance? Do you see it? I will give you what? The nations as your inheritance. Now, what's so significant about the word nations? What's so significant? 
Where do you first begin to get the idea or see the concept or the allusion to nations? Where do you see that first in the Bible? Well, that's where specifically stated as word nation, but where do you see the allusion to nations? That's why, you know, not the word itself. In Genesis 1.26, what? You will rule over the earth. You will rule over everybody on earth, which means the nations. Do you see it? The nations. Todd said Genesis 15. What is that? The Lord says to Abraham, what? I will give you what? Nations. You will inherit nations and kings will come from you. Remember? In Genesis 15 and 17. And so why is that happening? Because God is progressively moving toward the fulfillment of his original purpose as stated in Genesis 1.26. But as a result of the fall of Adam, his purposeful and he ate. Remember those three words at the end of verse 3, uh, at the end of verse 6 in chapter 3. And he ate. God's purpose, if you would, in a man came to a it fell because a man sinned, but God's purpose didn't fall. The man fell, but God is still moving forward. By the way, when God creates the heavens and the earth and when he creates Adam and Eve, does he know Adam is going to fall? Yes. Oh, yes. See, he's a, here is the peculiarity of sovereignty. He not only knows it, David, but what else? He what? Use that word, that word D word. Or another way of saying determined de decreed. Listen to me. This isn't something that happened. Hey, Pam. This is not something that happened. And God allowed it. He did allow it, didn't he? Did he allow it? Well, certainly he allowed it. Could he have stopped Adam and Eve? Yes. At any moment, he could say, don't touch it. Don't eat it. Did he allow it? Yes. That's not the issue. The issue is, why did God allow it? Because he decreed it. Right, Jan? He decreed it. Therefore, what he decrees, he allows. Do, do we see that? If you decree that your children are going to play here, then you allow them to play here. The question is, why did he decree it? Well, we have that too, so that his glory may be manifested. Now, you see, here is the dilemma. Here is where I, I am not going to get through all this today. I don't know whether I should apologize or not. Here is the dilemma that we all face. Is there anything on earth that a sovereign God does not decree? Is there anything on earth that a sovereign God does not, is not fully and absolutely involved with from beginning to end? If there is anything that occurs outside the active presence and work of God, it is happening independently or unilaterally of God. And as a result of that, he is not in charge of that. Are you with me today? You see, this is obnoxious.
It's obnoxious to the flesh. How many of you like this idea that God decreed this? In your, in, in your humanity, how do you, you know, in your fleshly humanity, how many of you say, oh, yes, I'll just like No, we have to have the Spirit of God in us to like it. We can't like that in the natural. This is obnoxious. Angel, do you see that? It's like, what kind of a God is this? Flo, what kind of a God is it? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the deep, the deep things, the things that, mm, I don't know about that, I don't understand. The deep things, the quizzical things, the things I don't understand, the things I don't like, the things I don't appreciate, the things I don't believe, all those things, those things God ain't telling you. He's not telling you. He's giving you a few things and you're going to know that. But there are things he won't know about. The deep things belong to the Lord. And these are deep. So here's the issue. Whenever we hear the sovereignty of God presented in actual sovereign terms. Not sovereignty meaning, well, God allowed it, don't you see? He does allow it, but why? Because he has decreed it. How many of you have always kind of in a discussion with someone about something terrible in their life, in the world? How many of you, when you're discussing something that's happened, that's been tragic or difficult, have said God allowed it rather than decreed it? Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Well, God allowed it. Why? Because we want to ameliorate what? We want to soften the blow. We want to make God look okay, Lisa. You see, we don't want to make him look so bad as he did what? And here's the rub. Here's the rub. It shows the depravity of humanity that we believe that we are so important that God is obligated not to do anything at all that is personally or corporately detrimental to us. Come on, come on. Are you with me today? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Right? What kind of a God is it, Ron? Do I understand this? But we teach truth. Because this is what the Bible teaches us. So where was I? God is fulfilling his original mandate to have his people rule the earth in his name as agents of his sovereign purpose. And that rule will be within the context of the rule of his own son as king over all the universe. Got it? That's how that's happening. So let's do a little bit at least where we are today. So in verse 8, Psalm 2, 8. Ask me, ask of me, and I will what? I will what? Surely. No equivocation here. Do you know what equivocation means, Edward? What? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. No equivocation here. What? I, I was talking to Edward, not Haddon. I know. It's wonderful. Isn't it lovely? 
You're saying one thing, be meaning two different. Okay, well, equivocation means, no, 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 but that may be said. There's no equivocation with God. Do you notice that? I will what? Surely give you the nations as your inheritance. According to what purpose? According to what I determine to have in the beginning. And he's speaking, the father is speaking to the son. And the son, remember, is the one or the agent of God who created all things. So as if, as if to say, son, you created all things to attain my purpose of having a people. And now I am fulfilling that by appointing you as king over all these people. Everything, everything in the Bible has, is an outworking of God's original purpose in Genesis 1.26. Do now we know that? Do we see that? So with this command, the father gives the son the right to inherit the nations. But based on what? He gives the son the right to inherit. But look, but this right to inherit, listen to this carefully. This right to inherit is the son's indigenous right. Do you know what I mean by that? It is the son's right because he is the son of God, the creator. It is his right by who he is. But he's not inheriting the nations strictly and only and unilaterally as the son of God. But he is inheriting the nations as the son of man. Do we see this? This is the Son of God. He has all authority. No one needs to give the Son of God all authority. He has it intrinsically. What do I mean by that? He has it by the fact that he is God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of, of the Trinity have the authority. They don't have to have it given to them. They have the authority in who they are, in themselves. But he must be given that authority not because he is the son of God intrinsically in himself, but because he is the son of God who has taken to himself a human body and soul and has come to redeem us as the son of man. So as a man, he must be given authority. And so as a man, the, the, Yahweh speaks to the son of God, the son of man, and he says, ask me and I'll give you the nations. Do we see the distinction here? Do we see what's not happening? So, this man, this son of man, this son of God, son of man, has the right to inherit as the result of the reward of his absolute obedience to the Father's will. You see, we are the reward of Jesus' obedience. Now, you see, I say it that way because... If we're not careful with our Christian theology, we're going to dismiss the idea that we earned it. We earned it. And that should be dismissed about ourselves. But did Jesus earn the right to become king? Yes or no? Yes. He earned the right to become king. How? By his absolute obedience to the Father's will, 
he earned the right. You see, as Adam was to earn the right to be king and to rule over the nations of the world, here's what I'm telling you, Adam. Remember this in Genesis chapter 2? Here are the trees of the garden of every one you may eat. But verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what? You shall not eat, but in the day that you eat, what's going to happen? You shall surely die. He loses the right, but Jesus earns the right. And if you would, regains the right for as a man and for humanity. This was the subject of Jesus' prayer. Remember in John chapter 17? First three verses. Let's read them carefully. Let's look at this. Jesus is going to the cross. Now look. Jesus is going to the cross. This is the last prayer before he crosses over what is called the Brook Kedron. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And the greatest spiritual battle of all eternity occurs in the garden. As one man's will is tested as to whether or not he will walk in moral correspondence with the will of the Father. Adam was tested in the garden and he did what? Failed. And here's the second Adam being tested in the garden. As to whether he will fail or not. And he does not fail. So why does Jesus come? What is all this, this wrestling about? What is all this ministry about? What is the incarnation about? What is all of it about? Well, you may say it's about our salvation and you would be correct only secondarily. Remember, we've talked about that. Our salvation is not the primary purpose of God in Christ. It is the secondary. It is the result of the primary purpose being fulfilled. Do we have that in our hearts? Do we have it in our hearts that we are not the primary purpose? There's something greater than we in this. So look at verses 1 through 3 in John 17. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour of his death. Glorify your son in order that the Son may glorify you. The purpose of the Son of God on earth as the Son of Man is one purpose only, and in that purpose there are other ramifications or other results coming, but the root of it all, Father, glorify your Son, what? That the Son may glorify you. And how does the Son glorify the Father? In the incarnation, the conception, the birth of Jesus, all the way to the end, to the death. The Son, as a man on earth, glorifies the Father. That's the purpose of God sending the Son. That was the purpose of God in creating in the first place. All of it is gathered into one purpose, that God the Father may be shown to be glorious in all of his ways. Why? Because he is. You see that, Amanda? Why? Because he is. Greg, why? He is. Do we see it? Porter, do you see that? He is. He just is. So God is manifesting, Joe, who he is. 
And can you imagine this? That before the foundation of the world, he had you specifically in mind to be a partner in this glory. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? It's beyond conception. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, can you imagine that? That we who sit in this room who are ch children of God, that he has called us before the foundation of the world in his own mind and intention and birthed us into this kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit when we were born again, to which we said yes, so we received Jesus. And Andy, you were called before, the, created and called before the foundation of the world to be a co-participant in the revelation, the greatest revelation of all revelations, the glory of God. So when you think why, what happened in all that, do we see it? Do we see it? Ask God, as I do, give me a greater experience and understanding of this. Greater experience and understanding. Gordon, can you imagine this is who you are? And you thought you were just a cab driver. This is who you are. Creature, this is why you have been born and born again. Father, the hours come, glorify your son in order that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Do you see the authority thing right there? That's Psalm 2.8, to inherit. In order that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. By the way, I didn't have verse 3. And so what is verse 3? What, what is the definition of eternal life? Verse 3 is the definition of eternal life. You don't have to try to figure it out. Chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know what? Gnosko. Know personally. Personal fellowship and relationship. Like a husband and a wife know one another. Physically. Being the clearest physical manifestation of that. For this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, who alone are truly God, who alone are truly God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to know God. And to know God, we can only know him in this man because we are part of his inheritance due to him because of his obedience. Do so you see how it puts together, which is the fulfillment of his original purpose for Adam, which Adam failed, and therefore the Son of God becomes the Son of Man to fulfill the Father's original intention according to the eternal decree of God. Before Jesus' exaltation and subsequent inheritance, he had to travel the cross. So how does he become king? He doesn't become king just because he's the son of God. He is king as son of God. But he is earning the right as the son of man to be coronated. Do we see that? He is the king of glory, isn't he? As the son of God. Remember in Psalm 24, who is the king of glory? Remember that? Who is the king of glory? He is the king of glory. But as the son of man, he must earn the right to become king of glory in order that he inherits us as his kingdom. 
And before he can be crowned king, he must go through the cross. You see, knowing this, knowing this, that I am here for the revelation, manifestation of my Father's glory in a people whom I inherit through my obedience. Therefore, I embrace the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now what? Set down where? At the right hand of God. Did Jesus, for the joy of being beaten? No. Of being criticized, lashed, hurt, spit upon? No. His joy, get this, Jesus' joy is the joy that was announced in Luke 2. For the angels said what? For behold, I bring you news of a great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Messiah who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And you will find him where? Wrapped up in these clothes of a child, lying in a manger. What joy? Gail, what joy? What joy? The Father's joy of displaying his glory in a people of his own heart. Jesus' joy over the joy of his heavenly Father. Got it? Jesus' joy over his Father's joy. What is the most joyous thing? For those who are parents and grandparents in here, what is the most joyous and exciting thing about birthdays or Christmas? What is the most glorious and joyous thing about those presents to those little ones? What is it? The joy that they are getting and that we are seeing and experiencing by our giving them something. Are you with me? What's the greatest joy? Of course, when I was a kid, the joy was me getting something. But once we became parents, I remember the, the, the joy. You know, you buy something for your child, your wife, or whatever. And if you're like me, I can't stand the wait. How many more days is it to this? And I start giving out hints. <laughs> hints. I can't stand it. What can I stand? I can't stand waiting for the expression of joy in my wife's face or in my daughter's face or in my grandchildren's faces when they open the presents or receive what I have given them. Amen? That's the joy. And that's the joy that Jesus had going to the cross so that the Father would have the presence of his people with him forever. Do we see that? That's the joy. Now, what's the question this morning? Is this our joy?
for undergoing and through and around and experiencing anything and everything in our life as the Father collects all these things in our life to work toward the good for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Can we begin to think this way? I am going through unmitigated hell. I don't like it. I don't, I know Jesus didn't like it because what did he ask the father in the garden? If there's any other way, please what? Remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus didn't embrace the rigors of the cross as a sadist. Oh, I love being hurt. Woo, do it again. He did it because the joy of his father's, of, of, of experiencing and seeing his father's joy overrode everything else to the contrary. That's why he went to the cross. We sing a song incorrectly for our sin held him there. <clears throat> the joy of the father held Jesus on the cross until in John 1930, he said, it's finished. Now will my father be glorified. And now is my joy made complete. Amen. Well, I didn't quite get finished the material today, but we'll continue next week. Thank you.